If you have a Bible with you, please open it to John chapter 9. Many people have tried to kind of describe what it means to be a great storyteller and how people can grow in their ability to either write or to tell stories. And some stories focus on plot over character. Um, if characters are present, they're really only present there to drive the plot forward. Uh, some stories really focus more on character than plot. And, and if there is a plot, it's really just there to drive character development. Some people would say focus on the scenes and lush language to depict what's going on around the characters. Others say you know, focus on the way in which the dialogue happens. It, it, it's able to give hints and, and pictures of what the characters think are important. I don't know what it takes to be a good storyteller, but I do know a good story when I read one. I think all of us do. It's very easy to spot great stories. Would you listen to it? Would you hear it? Would you read it again? Do you come back to it time and time again? Is it something that resonates with you? Is it something that causes you to stop and to think and and to ruminate on? Does it sort of sink with you or challenge you in some way? If I were to choose for myself, not for anyone else, but if I were to choose for myself, I think that John 9 is probably the best story in Scripture. And what I mean by that is not that it's better than the gospel. Uh, I don't mean that it's better than the overarching story of Scripture, but of all the small little vignettes we get in Scripture, I, I really just love this story. It isn't the most important story. If we lost John chapter 9, I, I think that we would still have a, a good form and in feature of what Christian theology should be. I think that there are many more important passages in Scripture. You can think of Romans 3, uh, especially the latter verses in 21 through 26, Galatians 2, 15 and 16, even Genesis 1, 2, and 3, incredibly foundational for everything that we read later in Scripture. So it's not the most important, but I think that it is one of the best told stories. As I was reading through not just the chapter, but even just these 12 verses, I was able to kind of think through all of the themes that come up here. There's so many that we will just barely sort of ricochet off of many of them. We won't have time to dwell on them. Sermon topics or, or even large devotionals from this, this little story that we have here include things like the nature of sin and the inheritance of sin from parents to children, God's good sovereignty over us and how he controls all things for the good of those who believe in him. This image of night and day and light and darkness, of creation, new birth, and even regeneration, of how we identify with Jesus, of the purpose of missions, of miracles, of testimonies, of suffering, of sanctification, of responsibility and sin of intelligence and wisdom and how they relate to one another, of what it means to be hard-hearted in the face of a good miracle, of what it means to have good Christology, of salvation, of judgment, of baptism, of persecution and compassion. All of these things are features of this story. It is rich and it's deep. And we will touch on most of these things as we go through the chapter. And I do mean simply touch. We will barely be able to plumb the surface. I don't plan on spending four years in John 9, and so for that reason and that reason alone, we're only going to touch on these things. It is a great story, and it is packed with insight, as all telling, as all good stories do. And this is a better story because it speaks of Jesus' power and his magnificence. So if you would with me, please read the first 12 verses of John chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, 
but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. He then anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but it's, he's like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, well, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud. And he anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. This is the word of our God. As we start the story today, clearly we're only tackling the first 12 verses. We won't be able to finish it today. But as we start the story today, I have four particular goals that I want to press before you. The first one is I want to correct your apprehension over suffering. I want to correct your apprehension over suffering. One of the themes that you're going to get, especially this morning, is that we talked last week about John 8, 58, this grand verse where Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And, and the, the importance of that statement as the Jews then pick up rocks to stone him. Part of the issue with that being such a magnificent and important verse when we talk about who Jesus is and the nature of the story in John 9 is only made more difficult by the fact that we have a chapter division here. But one of the things you have to come to grips with is that 858 and what happens here in the beginning of chapter 9 are not really separated in the text. So if we didn't have chapter 9 as a heading there and a separate heading even in the ESV, when we read this, we would read of him leaving the temple by hiding himself and going out of the temple. And then immediately we would say that as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. In other words, there really is no separation between what happened last week and what's going on this week. They're part and parcel of the same story. Because of what happened last week, and the Jews picked up stones to stone him, and Jesus hiding and getting out of the temple, what we would expect then, and what we would be cheering for, is if this were a movie, for him to get out of Dodge, for him to get away from the temple, for him to get away from the danger, and for him to go hide himself all the more. But instead what we find, is we find Jesus stopping to look at a blind man. And he must have been looking at him for some time because the disciples come up with this question, presumably because they saw Jesus staring at him. We are likely to think that Jesus should run and leave. But Jesus has great compassion and he stares at this blind man and he's thinking about this blind man. We'll come back to this. But it is worth asking about how busy our lives are for us not to be able to take time to, to stop and to have compassion on people who need help and who, who need not only a word from us, but maybe even things from us and how often we put them off because we're busy. Jesus just had his life threatened and he's not too busy to stand by and help someone. If we love Jesus' compassion, and we should, it is likely here of all reasons because we despise suffering. We can't stand suffering. Most of our lives are spent fleeing from suffering as fast and as far as we can. We don't like it and we don't want it in our lives and we don't 
want it in the lives of the people that we love. But suffering can be good. And I think that we should radically change the way we consider suffering. Some of this might seem masochistic. It might seem like I'm asking you to fall in love with suffering, but I'm not asking you to do that. I'm simply asking you to reframe the way you think through the fact that God has a purpose for your suffering in this world. The disciples' question is a good one. Perhaps they've been listening well to the words of Jesus. Jesus has been talking about how, back in chapter 8, truly, truly, he says in verse 34, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Perhaps even as we've gone through chapter 8 and we repeatedly came back to Isaiah 42, maybe they have that passage in their head where the Lord is talking to his suffering servant or talking to the servant that he will send. And he says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you and I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nation to open eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeons and from prison those who sit in darkness. Notice the nice combination of both of those things. To bring sight to the blind, to free prisoners, and then to free those who sit in darkness. Like both the blind and the prisoners kind of get combined into one. They are prisoners of darkness. They can't see well. And they look and they see this blind man and they hear Jesus talking about how how sin enslaves you and they think, well, this man is as enslaved as anybody else. He, He can't do many of the things that we would consider free men to be able to do. No doubt they had in their mind the same kind of sentiment that Job ran into when somebody like Eliphaz would say to him, Remember, who was it that innocent, who was innocent that ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. And they said, Well, from that we can see that he has reaped blindness, so he must have sown something wicked, him or his parents. If we were to ask such a question, or if we were to be asked such a question, We can see there's kind of different views that we could go to. Jesus quickly dispels the first view. Was it him or his parents? How far back do we want to track this sin? And Jesus says, well, it's neither of those two issues. We might track back even further. We might say, well, yes, it wasn't him or his parents, but sin was definitely involved. The reason why evil things happen in this world and bad things happen in this world is because Adam and Eve broke a covenant with God and they introduced sin and they introduced death into the world. Those answers are correct. And fallenness and and genetic disabilities happen in this world now because of that fallenness. Not necessarily because of your sin or the sin of your parents, but simply because sin is present in the world. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't go back just to the parents. He doesn't go back to their parents and their parents before them, all the way back to Adam and Eve. But rather, he goes all the way back to God's purpose for all things. I think many read the question and many read the answer and they think that things are being answered in two different directions. That the disciples are looking back at the cause, but Jesus is looking forward to the results. So the disciples are inherently looking at, well, what happened to lead to this point? And what Jesus is saying is that doesn't really matter. What really matters is what happens from this point on out. But that isn't what's going on at all. Jesus doesn't change the grammar of his answer. He he answers it exactly how they ask it. Notice his answer in verse 3. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that. In other words, the answer he's given is precisely a cause. It's not just a result. This man was born blind so that, with the purpose of, God being able to display his works in him. 
That is the purpose of this man being born blind. Yes, sin played a role in that. And yes, the way sin and God's sovereignty interact is mysterious. But Jesus is going back beyond sin and saying there is a purpose behind all of this. We might not like it. It might not sit well with us, but God ordains the suffering in the world and our suffering so that his works can be manifest. And God does this before. He does this all the way through Scripture. Think of the greatest act of the Old Testament deliverance that we can think of and the bringing of the people up out of the Egypt with the Exodus, right? And we think, what a great salvation. God cares and has compassion on his people. He ends their suffering. But remember, God sent them down to Egypt in the first place. And if they hadn't gone to Egypt and they hadn't been given special dispensation by Joseph, Egypt would never have gotten to the power that they were at. And had Egypt never gotten to the power that they were at, they would have never been able to oppress the people of God. And if they weren't able to oppress the people of God, then God wouldn't have been able to come and say to Pharaoh, I have raised you up so that I might destroy you to show my great power. It is the suffering of the people that brings God's glory about over their enemies. God does this in the past. He does this today. I think many of us overlook the difficulties that this blind man would have had in his life. It's not like today. Blind people today have many aids and many helps. They can hold good jobs. They are not anchors on society anymore. They can provide back to society. They can live on their own. There's a number of things and, and aids and helps that we give them in this world today. But in the first century, they had none of those. They were, they were anchors on their family. Imagine being a poor family who was going to have to rely on their sons, especially to work, to have a son be born to you, to have a son who was going to one day help you out and to find out that he was indeed blind. And not only would that son not help you out, but that he would have to be fed just like everybody else without ever providing anything for the family because blind people just, they can't work. They can't work back then. Begging was the occupation that they were thrust into. Not only did they carry around this burden of being an, an anchor on their family, an anchor on society, not only were they thrust into helplessness and worthlessness in great many causes, but there was just this stigma of being sinners. Listen, the, the, the disciples' question is not some sort of idiosyncratic belief. It's, this is not something that they came up with, that, that they hold in particular, and that no one else in the culture held. This is not a... a mysterious view. Whose sin caused this? this? This is on the basis of sin. And so if you were blind, there was this stigma that was attached to you that you were somehow a sinner. So there's a great deal of suffering here. God gives this man a great deal of suffering, but he does so so that his works might be shown in him. It's important that you guys think through these things, that I think through these things before we suffer and when we suffer lest we come away with bad answers. Not only does our suffering, generally speaking, not compare to what this man has been through and what other people have been through, but God gives us suffering so that he might make his great work known. Sometimes that will be by taking your suffering away. Sometimes that will be by healing. Sometimes that will be by deliverance. But sometimes God's great work in you is shown not by delivering you, but by persevering you through the suffering. God gives you sufficient grace to handle 
what is happening. God gives you sufficient grace to persevere in your faith before him so that you might not do what Job's wife wanted him to do and curse God and die. That is a grace of God. That demonstrates his great worthiness and his great power in you. Hence, the suffering isn't just relived in in compassion. The demonstration of God's work is not just the result, but it is the cause of suffering. But Jesus will eliminate that suffering. Perhaps God isn't out just to make us happy. Perhaps the suffering is not given to us simply to draw us back to him, although those can be reasons. Perhaps it is to make us into people who embrace his glory. After all, we know very famously Romans 3.23, all who sin fall short of the glory of God. If we are to do everything to the glory of God, then it's hard to find a better occupation to have than one who suffers for God's glory. If God's glory is truly what we exist for, then to be people who know that we will be relieved of that suffering at some point in time, to suffer in the present age, so that God might show his great work in our lives, then there is hardly a greater calling than to suffer for him. In Acts 5.41, we have this very strange verse where the apostles and the disciples have been preaching and teaching and healing people in the name of Jesus Christ, and they've been told to stop, but they keep doing it. Acts 5.41 says this, They left the presence of the council who, by the way, had ordered them beaten and flogged for continuing to do these things. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That strikes us as wholly ridiculous. That is against our experience. We don't suffer. We don't let people beat us and then think, man, that's awesome. I'm glad I was counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. But it's because we don't think through our suffering correctly. They understood their suffering correctly. First, let us rethink the nature of our suffering. But secondly, I would like to convince you, or convict you, excuse me, of the apathy over works. Convict you of your apathy over works. Jesus speaks here of God's work being done on this blind man and gives something of a straightforward metaphor. It's straightforward because in that time, in that day and age, it made a lot of sense. You cannot work while it's dark. They didn't own candles. And candles were incredibly expensive. Even a couple of hundred years ago, it would have been hard to do almost any work by candlelight. And almost no work was ever done at night. So once night hit, you were done working. You could sleep, you could sit around a fire and talk, but you weren't going to be doing much in the way of work. It made perfect sense to the people who heard it. Now, we have people who only work at night, but that is an incredibly modern invention. That's not the way that work used to be done. It used to be you only could work by day because you needed the sunlight to see what you were doing. So Jesus says very clearly, you can only work when it's day. Now, when I am here, because I am the light of the world, there is always light to work by. Not only has Jesus said, I am the light of the world again, here from 8.12, but also in 5.17, he talks about the fact that he is working and his father is working even until now. That it's always daylight for the sun. Earth can spin around and we can go behind the far side of the earth and it becomes nighttime for us. But if you are the sun, it's always the sun. And it's always daytime and it's always time to work. It's never time for Jesus not to work. But for us, Jesus says, 
the night is coming. And this is where the metaphor gets a little difficult. What does he mean by night is coming? When is it when Jesus' presence will be taken away? Some talk about the fact that it, it's in the tomb. Three days he spends in the tomb. And it, during that time, the disciples can't do anything. Well, that could possibly be true, but it doesn't seem like that would be what John's talking about. John makes almost nothing over those three days. He actually skips. If you go and read the crucifixion and the resurrection account, they put him in the tomb and the very next sentence is, and it was the third day. They went to, to prepare his body for burial. He makes very little of it and so it's probably not the three days that he spent in the tomb. Maybe it's the ascension. Maybe Jesus says, I'm going out of the world and so he ascends to be with the Father and because he's going to be with the Father, you can no longer do the works of the Father. It's hard to imagine that that's the case. The Acts of the Apostles is just filled with the apostles going out and doing not only the preaching of the word, but working miracles in the name of Jesus Christ. John 16, 7 even makes it very clear that it's better that Jesus were to leave. He says this, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus ascending to the Father is always a good thing. It empowers miracles rather than hindering them. In Acts 14.3, we read that, that Paul and others remained in Iconium for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who, that is the Lord, bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. It is not Jesus' ascension that makes it dark here. His always present with his people. So what makes it dark? My guess is, and it's just a guess, it is generally is talking about pulling away from certain places and locations where his spirit leaves that place and maybe dawns on another. We get hints of this in a book like 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy 3.1, Paul says, Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. And in chapter 4, he repeats the same idea. He says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The book of Revelation points in the same sort of direction. I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet. But it seems like this could very well be the kind of time and the place that we live in. Perhaps, Perhaps the light of Jesus is in its twilight phases in Western culture, and perhaps it is dawning in places like sub-Saharan Africa and China. Perhaps it is, it is that Jesus is removing his presence from the culture that surrounds us, and he is dawning his presence elsewhere. It's not that he has to leave in order to dawn elsewhere. Perhaps this is his sovereign choice. Maybe, maybe this just seems really out of place to you. Maybe this just doesn't make any sense. Why does he mention this here? If we're talking about how his presence comes and goes, why mention this here? But again, I want to repeat to you. I really, really want to repeat to you. 858 just happened. Him, him almost being stoned just happened. We might think that Jesus should run and get away and find shelter, but he instead turns here and says, you need to do the work while I'm here. In other words, he says, I know that I should be doing other things. I should be running. I should be hiding. I should be getting away from the Jews. But I can do the works while I'm on the earth. 
In other words, there is a pressing to do the works that God has left for us while we can do them. Friends, you must work now while there is some semblance of light. The future might have America being darkened and darkened and darkened and darkened. The future might have the people around you being darkened and darkened. It might be hard and harder to do the work. So now is the time. While it is day, even if it is twilight, work for Jesus Christ. Tell people, Jesus, do the work that Jesus has left for us because there might be a time in the future when the light is even more limited than it is now and it will become harder to do work. So to switch metaphors, strike while the iron is hot or simply work while there is light left. Do good. Preach the good news. Testify to what God has done for you because while the sun might be setting, there is still a light to see by in this world. Third, I would like to cause in you a new creation. I would like to cause in you a new creation. This brings us to the actual healing of the man, which is particular in many respects. Jesus heals him in a really odd way. It's it's a tremendously odd little passage. Not only does he spit on the ground and make mud to wipe on his eyes, but you'll notice the dude doesn't even ask to be healed. And unlike in John 5, Jesus doesn't even ask him if he wants to be healed. We get absolutely no words from the man until John 9, verse 9, where he says, yeah, yeah, I'm the guy who was healed. We have no indication that he believes at all, no indication of faith, nothing. Now, it's odd for Jesus to heal like this because we know that Jesus is incredibly powerful. He doesn't need to heal like this. He doesn't need to use mud. He doesn't need to use saliva. Back in Matthew chapter 8, we have this fascinating passage where even a centurion knows that Jesus can heal simply by saying it's done. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. He says, just, just speak and it will happen. And he says, I know that it will happen because I, I know what it means to be under authority. I know what authority looks like. I speak and things happen. People above me speak and I have to do it. And he says, you are the Lord. Speak and it will happen. Jesus says, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. In Luke chapter 8, we have something of a similar story where the woman who had the blood discharge for 12 years sneaks up behind Jesus and simply touches his hem. And he knows that power has gone out of him, but he didn't intend for it to. So he looks around and asks about it. So Jesus is incredibly powerful. He can heal any way that he wants to. So the fact that he heals this way for this story is poignant and important and I think highly symbolic of what he is trying to do. It's not a scripted way to heal. It's not a mechanism that was necessary for him to heal this way. But it's symbolic. And I think it is symbolic for the creation of man and itself. He takes mud and he makes man new out of mud. The early church fathers thought this way. Church father Ambrose gives a good summary of what the church fathers typically thought on this passage. Speaking of Jesus, he says this, In one instant, we see both the power of his divinity and the strength of his holiness. As the divine light, he touched this man and enlightened him. As priest, by action, 
symbolizing baptism, he wrought in him his work of redemption. The only reason for his mixing clay with the saliva and smearing it on the eyes of the blind man was to remind you that he who restored the man to health by anointing his eyes with clay is the very one who fashioned the first man out of clay, and that this clay that is our flesh can receive the light of eternal life. That is, from dust you are made to dust you go, and Jesus with just dust can remake you in an instant. He is powerful. And so he smears the dust on the man. He makes it into mud and puts it on him. And we'll come back to that baptism bit because we really do need to do that. But it is clear that Jesus is regenerating the man by putting mud on his eyes. It's a symbol of what it means to have eternal life. And we've talked about regeneration before. Interestingly, I think the New Testament speaks of regeneration in three specific terms. In terms of new birth, which we have in something like John 3, right? He says, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You must have a new heart, a new life being given to you. There is also the image of new creation, which we get here in John chapter 9. And then there is no less than the resurrection, which Paul talks about in Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive. And we get also in John chapter 11. John hits all three of these images of regeneration. Friend, this is what we need Jesus to do. We we need Jesus to create newness in us. If you came here, you came here wanting certain things, unless it is no less than life from Jesus Christ, you are going to be sad and disappointed. If you've shown up here looking for a little morality, trying to find out how you can be a better person, you may get that. We talk about morality. We talk about what is good and right and true. You might get that. If you've shown up here for an experience, you will definitely get that. It's an experience, whether it's good or bad, I don't know, but it's an experience either way. So you're going to get that. Some of you have shown up for certain songs. You've shown up to, to be united to a culture, united to a set of beliefs, united to something that, that kind of help you make sense of the world. And really what you're trying to be part of is evangelicalism, or you're trying to be part of a culture, or you're trying to be part of something. You can show up here for that as well. But none of those things is what you need. What you need, what all of us need as sinners, is to be made again. You don't need an experience. You don't need better morals. You don't need a culture. What you need is a work that only Jesus can do in you. What you need is something that you can never give yourself. What you need is something that I, honestly, even though I might want to cause it in you, and I will do the things that will cause it in you, cannot actually give you. It is a work of Jesus Christ and of him alone. He is the one who can reach down and make men new. He is the creator and he is the one who is given the power to recreate. He is the one who has life in himself. He is the one who is before Abraham was. So if pressing of mud to this man's eyes symbolizes his great need of being remade, our great need of being remade, and Jesus' ability to remake him and his ability to remake you, what does it mean for him to go wash it? Does it symbolize something? Yes, it does. Does it symbolize baptism? Yes, it does. Is Ambrose right when he's going to talk about the fact that it is the baptism that as a sacrament makes him able to see. 
No, he's not. So a lot of Baptist people are kind of feeling a little bit, if you're, if you're following me, if you kind of understand what I'm getting at, you're, you're kind of a little on edge because it sounds like what I'm going to say is that baptism gives you sight. Okay? The guy goes to the pool, he washes it, water goes on him, and in the water, he is now able to see. The early church fathers made a lot out of this. I'm all for the early church fathers, but they're wrong on this count. We ought to, as Baptists, think of the importance of baptism and stand on the importance of baptism everywhere. This is a great baptismal text, and there's a couple of reasons why. It's not that we are saved by baptism. It's not that we see the kingdom of God as John 3 talks about seeing the kingdom of God through baptism. But there are two things to consider from this text that are incredibly important and that really Baptists always uphold. First, his baptism is clearly united to his faith. No less than Thomas Aquinas reminds us that the Pool of Siloam is probably all the way on the other side of Jerusalem. This blind man has to make his way all the way across, all the way across Jerusalem during one of the busiest times of the year in order to wash his eyes out. And it seems like from the text that there is absolutely no one to go with him. Because when he comes back, no one stands up and says, yeah, that's the dude. I saw him wash and I walked him back. No one does that. No one was there when it happened. They all say, is this the guy? I don't know. Is he the guy? Is he the guy? I'm the guy. No one knows because no one went with him. Jesus puts the mud on his eyes and then tells him, go and wash. And it's an arduous and a long journey. Can you imagine what that would be like for a blind man to cross a city blind? Who would do such a thing? The only person who would do such a thing is one who is convinced that in doing it, he would be made well. That's who. It is clear, it is clear that this is uniquely tied to his faith and his trust in what Jesus has said. Secondly, let's be very clear. This only works because Jesus said that it would work. It doesn't work because baptism works all on its own. It is not the operating of the water itself that makes it go. This is no ex opere operato. This isn't, this isn't the working of the baptism simply because you're put into a pool and it works. It doesn't work that way. It works because Jesus says that it works. It heals him because Jesus has already healed him. The water hasn't any mystical properties. It doesn't heal him on its own. It simply reveals what Christ has already done. The pool of Siloam simply demonstrates that the man is healed. This, again, is the purpose of baptism. This is the purpose of baptism. It is not there to heal us. It is there as a demonstration that we have already been healed. It simply reveals what Christ has already done in us. And not to make matters worse, because it is an incredibly difficult passage, but this is exactly what 1 Peter 3.21 is talking about. When he talks about Noah being saved through the flood, he says this, Baptism, which corresponds to Noah being saved through the flood, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying it heals our guilt through Christ's resurrection. We appeal to God that our guilt might be taken away, not because we're being washed, but because of Jesus Christ's resurrection. It is tied directly to faith. Baptism heals you, and it gives you sight. There's nothing wrong with saying that it gives us sight. Baptism helps us see. It helps us see the truth of the gospel. The water, even as we talked about in 1 Peter, is linked to the flood. 
It's linked to the Red Sea. It's linked to judgment. It's linked to destruction. We are put in a medium where we cannot live. We are, well, not held under, but at least placed under gently. Now, some of you are worried what we do to baptismal people. But you're placed under, right? You can't live there, and you are brought back up. You are placed into destruction, and you are placed into judgment. You are placed into Jesus' death, and you are brought back out of the water to live again. It is a symbol of rebirth. It's a symbol of recreation. It's a symbol of resurrection. It not only shows the truth of the gospel and the picture of the gospel that we are dead in Christ and raised again, but it also unifies us together and to Christ. It unifies us together because whether we're talking about Ambrose or Paul or Augustine, every single one of those people underwent the same sort of baptism that we underwent. Augustine, as great a man as he was already by the time he was baptized, was put into water and he was taken out of water. The same way that every believer has done, the same small act introduces everyone into the church. But more important than that, it unites us to Christ. There are at least two things in this text that show that he is united to Christ by wiping his eyes with the pool of Siloam. First is the fact that John helps us by giving us the name of the pool and translating it for us. He says, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Jesus has just got done talking about how in verse 4, he is not simply the son of God, but he says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me. We think of, of the book of John being all about the fact that Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus is indeed the Son of God. He is the unique and unbegotten Son of God. However, in John's gospel, he is just as often the one God sent. And so for this man to be put in a pool whose name is sent is a symbol of him being put into no less than Jesus Christ. Jesus sends him, ostensibly, across the entire city so that he can actually go to this pool so that this little word game might work. We are united with him because we are washed in his baptism. We are washed in his suffering. We are washed in his blood. And we are united with him because the judgment that ought to have come upon us comes upon him. And our act of going into judgment is nothing but a symbol of that. There is one other very interesting and very small detail that shows his unity to Jesus. And that is when he says, I am the man. What he really says there is what we've talked about in 858 and in 824 and in 827. This man says no less than ego eimi, the bare standing I am. Now, you might say, that's a bit much because, as you already talked about, people can use that in Greek and it doesn't mean what we think it means in English, and clearly it doesn't mean it here. It doesn't mean it. You'll notice that no Jews stand up to pick up stones and to stone the man. They understand perfectly well what he means. And there's actually nothing wrong with the translation when it says, I am the man. But if we are to read this as though 858 is directly in the background here, we have to remember one other thing. John is translating this man's words. This man didn't speak in Greek. He spoke in Aramaic. And John is purposefully picking out words that unite him directly to what Jesus has already said. In other words, this man already sounds like Jesus. He's already talking like Jesus talked. It doesn't mean that he thinks he's God. It doesn't mean that he thinks he's Jesus. But rather, John is giving us linguistic keys to see that this man is now linked directly to Jesus. 
He is united to him. This is precisely what baptism does for us. It places us not just into death, it places us into Jesus' death. It doesn't just bring us out into life, but it places us into Jesus' life. Because he died, we die. Because he lives, we live. Because of the I am living in us, we are united with him. This is exactly what Paul gets at in Romans 6, 3-5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Friends, that is precisely what is being shown here. This man is baptized into Jesus. He's baptized into the one who is sent. And when he comes up, when he comes up, he says, I am. Because Jesus lives in him. Paul talks Again, in the same manner. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Friends, this is what the preaching the gospel and every evangelistic opportunity strives to do. It's not to gain a friendly ear. It's not to appear sensible and nice and kind. It's not to win arguments. But it is to present a gospel to them that can so radically change them that the only thing that people could say is he's a new man. She's a new woman. They are not who they used to be. They are completely different and changed in all ways, shapes, and forms. It is to show a miracle that has happened in their lives where Christ remakes them and then by baptism are united to the church and to him irrevocably by the name and the power of the church. And I say irrevocably if the faith is true. So what I desire for you even today is this, that by preaching the gospel that Jesus Christ has died for your sins, that he was buried and that he was resurrected on the third day so that you can unite with him in that death and resurrection, never to truly experience death again, but only to know life and goodness, to know the freedom of, of, of forgiveness and a freedom from sin. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. That can remake you. I say I want to cause that, but I cause that simply by preaching the gospel. It is God who does the work. And so therefore, fourthly, I want to confess to you again our salvation. The rest of the chapter is honestly almost all about this man's testimony. So we're going to limit what we're going to say here. But I would like to remind you again that the change wrought in him is great and it's noticeable. John says twice at the beginning of verse 8 that he was something, but he is that no longer. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? He was a beggar. He used to beg, but he does so no more. Christ has changed him. And yes, there are people in this world who will always have to beg. There are people in this world who will always need help from the church. But let us not forget, friends, that we have an inheritance kept in heaven for us, which is unperishable, undefiled, and unfading. We are rich even while we are poor. So while we might need assistance to keep us alive here, we need no assistance. God gives us all that we need. And the man, frankly, just isn't the same. They don't even recognize him. 
Maybe it was the opening of his eyes. Maybe they've never seen his eyes before. But they do not recognize this man. Something is different with him. And so it should be with us. If you have come into contact with Jesus, if you have been made new, if you have been born again, you should be wholly different than you were. You should look and act different than you were. This is better than sort of outpatient LASIK surgery, right? There is something wholly different about this guy. And all he says is, Jesus spit on the ground. He spread mud on my eyes and he told me to go wash and here I am. Now, does this man answer with a great deal of theology? No. Does he understand the fullness of what has happened? No. Can he articulate the theology behind what has happened? It's really unlikely. Does he know the full character and being of the one who has healed him? It's doubtful. Although by the end of this passage, he will. But he does give a faithful testimony to what Jesus has done for him. And friends, that's simply what we are called to do as well. Our testimonies are there to give a story of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We are to stand up in front of people and say, Jesus Christ has done this for me. This is the work that he has wrought in me. I am not the man I once was. I'm not the person I once was. I'm a wholly different person because Jesus has done something for me. He has died for me and he has raised me from the grave. Simply to say we were blind, but now we see. We were forgiven of our sins before God because Jesus died for them. And that forgiveness is applied to us. And our faith isn't just a sign of Christ's forgiveness, but it's a sign of his very life in us. We have been made new. This is why we give testimony. Don't forget the man was put into the pool named Sent, not just because that united him with Jesus, but because that was his mission now. He will be sent before the council, before the very people who hate and seek to kill Jesus, he will be sent before them to give testimony to what Jesus Christ has done for him. We are then sent to the world to give a testimony to the world of what Jesus Christ has done with us. Even as Pastor Richard preached just a couple weeks ago about Paul giving testimony before the rulers and the kings, we also are going to give a testimony before everyone of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So let us preach the good news of a Savior who sets free imprisoned people who gives sight to the blind, who gives blood for the forgiveness of all. Because this is good news. We ought to do this because there is life in no one else but in Christ alone. Let us pray. Father, let our response be true. We will soon sing in Christ alone our hope is found. Let his sacrifice be applied to those in this room. Let us respond in faith. Let new creation come. Let Jesus be glorified by what has happened this morning. Help us to see your glory anew as though our eyes see it for the first time. We pray this for our good and for your glory. Amen.